that so many people know and are familiar with these stories about lost things. Uh, in Luke 15, there are three stories. We're going to cover the first two today and hopefully cover the, the other one next week. So let me read the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing or there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for these beautiful words of Jesus recorded by Luke, preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit for your church to meditate on, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by. We ask you to come, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to every heart, that you'd have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you lost anything lately? You're wandering about like you've lost something. Are you all right? Yeah? Have you, have you, <laughs> you, lost, have you lost anything lately? I'm going to tell you a story about something that got lost. <laughs> so it was a beautiful April evening and myself and two intrepid explorers were heading uh, from Leitrim Lodge car park uh, beyond Hilltown up the path to Pierce's Castle along the top of Tornham Rock and over Rocky Mountain to finish. And at the top of Rocky Mountain there was the usual photography session uh, where there were selfies and not point zero point point fives point fives no point fives no point got to get a no point five. Uh, there were drinks from water bottles. There was maybe a celebratory cereal bar consumed. The hard grafting was done. We had a beautiful view on a beautiful evening before heading down the mountain, and we got back to the car with our lungs full of morn air, our legs well stretched, our dog well dirtied. And we're about to get into the car and a little voice says, Dad, I don't have my phone. Every pocket and every bag was checked multiple times. The phone was nowhere to be seen. It was somewhere on the side of Rocky Mountain. Darkness had fallen. Uh, the head torch went on and I headed back up Rocky Mountain on my own. Now, there, somehow, you know, we did get some photographic evidence of me going back up the mountain to find the phone. So we've got that one there. 
that, that was that was one of the easier bits. Uh, and then this this here as well. So it was it was quite an effort. Lots of lots of dad points were scored going back up this 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 mountain. And I felt it was a good time to pray. This little iPhone was only six weeks old and had never been in the mountains on its own before. Uh, and by global standards, Rocky Mountain isn't that big, but it's a lot bigger than an iPhone. And the Find My app isn't that good when you're on the side of a mountain. just doesn't pinpoint precisely. Uh, the Garmin Find My Phone function is, is great if you're within Bluetooth range, but the chances of that happening are pretty slim. And add to that, the phone was obviously on silent because teenagers, the ultimate humiliation is for their phone to ring somewhere in public and someone to hear it ringing. So the phone was on silent and we're in, we're in trouble. Uh, so I thought I would phone, you know, I'd go up the mountain a bit and I would phone the phone and of course it, it would light up and I would see it. Uh, but even though I had a signal, uh, the phone, I was going to say whose it was. <laughs> you probably figured it out. But the phone... Uh, had no signal to receive the call, and it went straight to voicemail. And also, we did not descend using a path. Why would you do that? You know, we just ran down through the long grass, gleefully skipping and singing. And I, th- I think I was the subject of, of much abuse that day because my hat made me look like a cart or a TV sporticus. Yeah, okay. So, so that was all the all the joy, skipping down the mountain. But for some reason, on the way down the mountain. I had been, you know, I was about 20 metres maybe in front of the girls and uh, Rach had stumbled and let a bit of a squawk out of her and I turned round and saw, you know, that, that she, was, she was okay and for some reason I took note of a particular stone rock on the ground that I was walking past and subconsciously seemed to remember what this stone looked like. Uh, and I reckoned that that was my one chance that maybe the phone came out of the pocket at that point. And if I could find that rock, <laughs> the phone would maybe be within about 20 meters of the rock. But there's lots of rocks on Rocky Mountain. <laughs> anyway, I found the rock, <laughs> believe it or not, in the dark. And I started a, a diligent search. I kept phoning, but there was no signal. And finally, there, there was a signal, no less than a 5G signal. Uh, because God does exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or even think. The call connected and about 10 meters away in the grass, a little light went on. I found the phone. And at that moment, my charismatic theology exploded in doxology. There were many shouts and hoots and squeals of praise that I believe could have been heard in Anna Long. The phone was lost and now was found. I took a photograph of it. This is a legit photo this time. Uh, this, this moment of, of finding the phone. And I tried to send the picture to Sarah, who was back in the car. And I had no signal to send it. And I started to run. Really excited because I had found that valuable thing that was lost. And not a great idea running down a mountain in the dark on your own. But I was so full of joy and so looking forward to sharing the joy that I ran in my clumpy walking boots down the mountain and down the path and back to the car so we could celebrate together. And I believe I said in the car on the way home, this will make a good sermon illustration (laughs) someday. I would not have gone back up the mountain if Rach had dropped a cereal bar. Uh, That's not a valuable item. Don't take offense at that. Uh, I, I would not have made a diligent search if uh, she'd left her water bottle lying on the top of the mountain because 
bit more valuable than a cereal bar, but still um, not as valuable as a phone. It was the value of the lost item that led to the diligence in searching that actually got a record number of steps that day, 31,000. Uh-huh. So I, I have a colleague then in school who knows the morns like the back of her hand, and I went to her first thing the next day to tell her the good news of the phone that had been lost and had been found again. I just wanted to share this with people. I was so excited. Have you ever lost something really valuable and known the dejection and the despair of losing it and engaged in diligent search for it and then found it and known the joy and the celebration and the relief of finding it? So when I read these little parables about valuable lost things being found, I've got a point of reference. The setting here in Luke chapter 15 is that Jesus has a crowd again who are following along with him. And these three parables over history, these have been taken out of context so that a lot of people know the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and next week, the prodigal son, but don't know exactly why Jesus told them. And the reason why Jesus told them was because tax collectors and sinners were gathering around him and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were muttering. They were complaining. They were grumbling about who Jesus was eating with. So we have these stories. We have the parable of the prodigal son, for example, because one day a Pharisee grumbled about how Jesus was or who he was hanging out with and Jesus then issued forth in these parables he was coming under attack repeatedly because of who he was eating with this man welcomes sinners and eats with them and the reason and you've got to hold this as you go through the rest of Luke 15 this week and next week the reason Jesus told these parables was to give an answer to the accusation or to the question or to the complaint that he was eating with the wrong people. That's why he tells the parables. And you do need to recall as well, Luke 14, not that long ago, first half of Luke 14 was two weeks ago. And in that passage, Jesus is eating with the Pharisees. And as I've stressed a couple of times since, it was the last time he ate with them. He was done with them. He spoke in that passage of a banquet that had been prepared and an invitation that had been given and of people who then refused to come to the banquet, even though they had originally said they would come. And now he has left them and he told a story about how people would be sent out to the highways, to the hedges, to the periphery, to the margins to bring in the outcasts because the house is to be full. And all of these reprobates, these tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors were hated because they were traitors in Israel. Sinners were despised and mocked and they were refused access to the temple. All of these people are being drawn to Jesus. There is something stunningly attractive about Jesus because these people were being drawn to him. There is something stunningly beautiful about the character of Jesus whenever his character is seen 
authentically, represented authentically. It is a beautiful thing. He is a beautiful person. And he is, he, these people in, in need of grace, in need of mercy, completely aware that their lives are a mess, they are drawn to him. The beauty of, of who he is and the grace and the hope that he offers. The religious leadership complain about it. And Jesus, although he is stunningly appealing to those who need grace, he is stunningly repulsive to those who don't think they need grace. (laughs) To those who think that they are okay and that in their own lives they have merited favor with God and they don't need mercy and they don't need grace. Jesus is, is repulsive to people like that. They don't want him. And they're really annoyed about what Scott McKnight calls a profound covenant action when you invite people to the table to sit down and eat with them. In in that context, you would have dipped your hand into the same bowl. You would have got bread and there would have been a common bowl in the middle of the table and you would have dipped the bread in and eaten and it was intimate and it was close. And if somebody ate at your table, they were accepted. They were in your family And Jesus does this with the wrong people, according to the Pharisees. He befriends the undesirables because he wants to draw them to God. It's similar to what we saw in Luke 5, where the Pharisees back at that point asked Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's similar to what he will say later on in Luke 19 at the end of the Zacchaeus story. I came to seek and to save the lost. So the, the, the parable is told at the bottom of the screen there in verse 3. Jesus told them this parable. And who is the them? It is the tax collectors and the sinners that are around him. And it is also the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are complaining. And it's amazing here how the same words from Jesus' mouth can completely impact two different groups of people very differently. The same words to the Pharisees and the tax collectors, these words are going to come as a stinging rebuke of their attitude towards people. To the tax collectors and the sinners, these words are going to come as beautiful grace. Same words, but received very differently by different people. In fact, in in Matthew, after one of the parables in Matthew 21, it says that the, the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables and they knew he was talking about them. They knew he was talking about them. So we have two parables that we're going to look at. They're short and they're pretty simple. Um, that, that offer Jesus' explanation of why he ate meals with the outcasts. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. The first parable is about a shepherd. The second parable, the shepherd was a man. The second parable is about a woman. And again, just a wee theme that's been going throughout Luke is that Luke wants to present the gospel to everyone. And he frequently has a story of a man and the story of a woman side by side. He, He wants people to know that the gospel is for all of society. And although the Pharisees will get explicit mention in the parable next week, if you know the parable of the prodigal son, there's not just one son, there's another one. And he's like the religious Pharisees. 
They will get a mention in that parable, but they get a subtle rebuke here if they're fit to hear it. This is a parable about a shepherd. Pharisees were the leaders of Israel's religion, and therefore they were supposed to be shepherds. None of them worked as shepherds. They didn't know the role of a shepherd. Well, they knew it, but they didn't actually do it. But they were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people. In the Bible, leadership, Israel's greatest leaders, Moses and David, were shepherds. God himself, in, in, there's no, no subtlety here, the Lord is my shepherd. So leadership is presented as being a shepherd function and the Pharisees were meant to fulfill that shepherd function and they weren't doing it. And Jesus, by using the story of a shepherd, he is having a little dig at the Pharisees. Listen, I don't have this on the screen, but listen to some verses from Ezekiel 34 about, about bad shepherds, which is what the Pharisees ended up being. Ezekiel is told, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick. Or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And it goes on and on and on. This message against Israel's leadership that are not functioning in the way they should. And it gets to the point in verse 11 where God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. In verse 15, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, says the Lord. He promises, I'm going to come and I'm going to show you what shepherding looks like. And Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of that good shepherd promise. So this parable is having a little dig at the Pharisees who have dropped the ball in terms of shepherding. This, this shepherd has a hundred sheep. So you're a middle-of-the-road shepherd if you've got 100 sheep. You know, that's, that's not tiny and it's not massive. That's a moderate flock of sheep. And he probably looked after them himself and owned them himself. He probably did not have other people employed to look after the sheep. Uh, because, as we read in John 10, a hired hand would not really care for the sheep and go after a lost one. So this guy probably owned the sheep, looked after the sheep himself, and the point I'm trying to make is they were valuable to him. They were valuable enough that if one of them got lost, he didn't just say, well, that's 1% of my flock. That's not so bad. We'll be okay. No, this sheep was valuable to the shepherd. Valuable enough that he left the 99. I'm going to come back to that in, in a few minutes because some people wonder, he left the night. He just abandoned them to wander around. It doesn't make sense that, that the 99 were just left and away he goes. Like Surely when he comes back, they're going to be all over the place because it says he left them in the open country. But we'll come back to that. He left the 99 and he went after the one. The sheep 
was greatly valued. The same in the, in the story of the woman who had, the lost, or had lost a coin. And I'm just going to merge the two parables together and deal with them at the same time. She had 10 silver coins and loses one. And again, you might think, well, that's not that big a deal. So one out of 100 for the shepherd, one out of 10 for this lady. Next week, it'll be one out of two with the sons. And, and you maybe think, what, what, what's the issue? The issue is these 10 coins were probably on a headdress that she would have worn, which was probably part of the dowry that her husband paid to her family whenever he married her. So it wasn't just, it wasn't like when you sit down in the car and you've got these, I don't know about your trousers, but my trousers have this automatic function where the pockets just empty as soon as I sit down in the car and you hear everything just jangling down in under the seat. It's handy when you need money for a car park. If you ever see me in a car park with a door open, sort of bent over, I'm looking for money to pay, pay the thing. But this wasn't just like a, a coin disappearing under the car seat or down the sofa or whatever. This was really precious to her. Really precious. The point is that it was very significant. It had great value. Like an iPhone. You know, but much greater. All of us own things that, that, that we, have, we attribute great value to, that other people maybe don't attribute value to. We all have like a value system. And we all have little trinkets and little things that we keep that to us are really important for various reasons. I have this up in my study. This is a hospital napkin from Craig Avon Area Hospital. A bit of just roll that's out in the ward for people to, to mop up and... and, and you know, they have them when, when their meal comes, maybe a few of these come on the tray. And I found it one day when I visited that. It was lying on the ground beside him and there was writing on it. And I lifted it up and I, and I looked at it and, and he's written a few things on it. He's written his name on it. He tried to write the date. He was a little bit confused with the year and he was a year out with his age. He wrote 87. I assume he was referring to his age. He was a year out with that. And he wrote, trusting is believing to God be the glory. And, and I picked it up off the floor and I, and I sort of talked to him about it. And in and out of confusion with medication and tiredness and all the stuff that goes along with, with that. But he, he was trying to write a tract for another guy in the ward. He was, trying to, he was trying to write a little tract that he could go and give to him. And, and I have that, in, in, you know, even in his confusion and in his illness, he was going after the lost. And I have that in my study. That's a, that's a piece of paper towel. No money would buy that. <laughs> no money. No, not, none of you. You couldn't afford it. None of you could afford to buy it off me. <laughs> Honestly, I wouldn't let it go. It's valuable to me. We all have things that we value immensely. I went looking for a phone on the side of a mountain because it's a thing of value. Not just because of the, the price of it and replacing it, but all the memories that are on it. And the fact that not everybody backs up their phone. <laughs> not everybody pays the 99p a month to get that wee extra bit of iCloud to keep all those precious photos on. So like that, that all goes as well as the device itself. And it's whenever we value things that we go looking for them. What does God value? You know, I value that. And there's other things. My study is a wee treasure trove of things that I've picked up over the years that you would look at and say, what on earth are you keeping that for? I mean, that's really precious to me. What does God value? I tell you, God values a soul. 
It says in Mark 8, Jesus says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, everything, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And Jesus there is alluding, I think, to a Psalm, Psalm 49, verse 8. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. You cannot put value on a life. You cannot put value on a soul. That's what God values. That's what he holds in high regard, immeasurable value. God values people. Every single individual, old, young, no matter the race, no matter the status in society, no matter what job they have, what wealth they have, or what poverty they live in, no matter what their background is, and no matter, and this sometimes people struggle with this, no matter how wicked and evil they are, they're still made in the image of God. God values souls. The lost are worth finding. This sheep and this coin are valuable to these people. And we need to get our value system aligned with God's value system. You see, you don't tend to bust yourselves searching for things that you don't value. And we need to take on this value that Jesus has and that God has for the lost. So the first thing I take from these two parables is the value of the thing being pursued, in this case, the lost. Second thing is the search. The shepherd leaves the 99 in the open country and goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. A diligent search, going out in the darkness at the end of the day when the sheep have all been gathered in and counted and he heads back out into the wild where nocturnal wild beasts would be coming out and he's off looking for his lost sheep. The, the woman who has lost the coin, she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house because there, was, there would have been straw on the floor to, to cover up the earthen floor. There would have been straw there just to soften it a bit. It's going to be hard to find a coin in that. So she starts sweeping up the floor. She searches carefully until she finds it. The search is diligent. There is effort required. But the thing has value. And therefore, it is worth searching for. I wouldn't have gone back up the mountain for a cereal bar or a water bottle, but there was value in the item that was lost, and therefore the search was diligent. And the scene explains why in the last chapter, God is so quick to invite others to the banquet. Whenever the original ones invited wouldn't come, he's like, get out there and compel people to come in so that my house will be full, so that my table will be full. A feast has been prepared. It will not be delayed. Go and find, go and search for the lost and bring them in. There's effort, there's urgency. Jesus said in John, the fields are white unto harvest. He didn't say they will be. We're great at delaying. He didn't say, wait until, you know, whatever happens. He says, the fields are white unto harvest. And I believe over the years, the Holy Spirit has given Linda and I some particularly just strong images in, in this town. Strong pictures that we've held to other things that you maybe forget over time. But there's been some images that God has given us that, that, that we hold to very, very strongly. And one of the ones that God gave me one time was just this, this idea of Jesus standing at the top of the town. And I mention this every six months or so, so I don't care really if you've heard it before. It's important. 
Jesus standing at the top of the town, up where the Christmas tree goes. And it's almost like he's, he's having a brief second incarnation. He is on the earth in flesh, limited to being in one place at one time. And he's there for one night only, up at the top of the town. And he's in Tandriki, of course, the bright center of the universe. And, and I go up to him and I'm like, I've, I've just, it's almost like this happened. It didn't happen, but it's almost like it happened. I have pondered this, this image so much. I go up to him and I say, Jesus, what will we do? It's awesome that you're here. What will we do? Uh, there's half a dozen churches, Jesus. Which, which one will we go to? We don't normally meet on a Sunday night, but I can text the tablers. And they'll probably stop what they're doing and come over when they hear who's here. <laughs> you could even preach, Jesus. I'm okay with that. I'll take a back seat. We, you know, and, and I'll just allow myself to be ministered to. And I can see him just saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Take me to them. <laughs> Take me to your lost. I can imagine him just saying, right now, I don't want to go to church. <laughs> I came to seek and save the lost. I've got five or six hours. Take me to them. <laughs> and that, that is just something that the Holy Spirit has seared into my imagination. That picture, if Jesus was here, what would he do? I think he would want to find the lost. And a disciple follows and imitates their teacher. And the disciples of Jesus follow and imitate him. And therefore we should be searchers. Searchers. And after the search, there is a party. <laughs> search, party. Do you see what I've done there? Okay, right. <clears throat> There's a search and then there is a party. Question, can you party like God? Does your God party? Does your Father party? Or is your view of God that he's just austere and firm and grim, no smiles? I remember on teacher training, the guy that trained me to be a teacher, he said, don't smile till Christmas. <laughs> like, mate, you want me to sit with teenagers for four months and not smile? No, no, don't. And he was really saying, don't, don't, don't smile. Don't stop it. Anyway, God smiles. God smiles. Can you party like God? I want to talk about the party. Whenever he finds the lost sheep, the shepherd joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Now, this is a beautiful picture, but there's probably an aspect of it as well where sheep are stupid. And going and finding the sheep is not like going and finding your dog and, and walking back home and your dog, you know, coming along. The sheep is not going to follow you. <laughs> it's going to look at you and say, do I know you? Uh, so the sheep had to be lifted. Up onto, the, up onto the shoulders and on a way off to back to the rest of the flock. But that, that picture of the sheep being joyfully set up on the shepherds, imagine, imagine getting home and, and hugging Mrs. Shepherd and the smell, you know, from the sheep. Okay. Um, this, this reminds me of, of God, which is meant to. Uh, in Isaiah 40, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. And carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. There's a beautiful verse just before that in Isaiah 40. That's verse 11. The verse before it is about God's powerful, strong arm. And then you look in verse 11. What's his powerful, strong arm doing? It's lifting up 
the little lambs and holding them close. This picture of God's tender, protective care. And joy becomes the, the, the heart of these three parables, rejoicing. So the, the shepherd calls his friends and neighbors together, rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. The woman calls her friends and neighbors together, rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. It's not a private rejoicing, it's a shared rejoicing. And we see God's heart for sinners. We see how he values lost people. Our searching should become much more high priority and there will be an overflow of rejoicing from that. And these 99, God, or Jesus says at the end of the, the parable of the lost sheep, I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The way to God is through repentance. I wonder, do some people flirt with Christianity a little bit and end up, I talked last week about people who get disillusioned because they're following an illusion. I wonder, do some people get disillusioned with Christianity because they they never repent? (laughs) The God that they've had presented to them or that they've conjured up in their own imagination does not require repentance and so they don't repent. And then they get disillusioned because they've never come to God in that authentic state of repentance. But I'm wondering how how much is is this uh, a dig at the Pharisees, this 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent? There is no such thing, Jesus, as a righteous person who doesn't need to repent, unless it's a Pharisee. If someone's righteous, if someone's walking in right relationship with God, they will know that ongoing lifelong repentance is absolutely necessary. It's part of the journey. And the concept of a person who doesn't need to repent is a contradiction in terms. And I don't think Jesus is saying here, I've got a hundred Christians. One of them has gone astray. I'm going to leave those 99 who are okay and haven't gone astray and don't need to repent. And I'm going to go after the one. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying to the Pharisees, I'm done with you. I'm leaving you in the open country. You 99, you who think you don't need to repent, you who think you don't need my grace, you don't need my mercy, you don't need my strong arms lifting you and holding you close to my heart, you who I have eaten with in Luke 14, who have rejected the invitation to come to the feast, since you guys have it all sorted out and you don't need me and you don't need to repent, you can stay there. I'm going to go on after the lost. I think the 99 are not Christians who are sorted and are okay to be left on their own. I think they're the religious Pharisees that Jesus is here in these chapters very clearly fed up with and finished with. So God places great value on people and he goes to great effort to search for them. And then there's great joy over the restoration of one. One. Every single one. You, when you decided to follow Jesus, when you repented, when you accepted the grace and the love and the mercy and the strength and the power for living that he offers, you caused a party in heaven. Unreal. Unreal. 
And as I thought about the party, I thought about the, the rejoicing. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. I thought about that rejoicing. I thought, does Jesus ever talk about this in the Gospels anywhere else? And I'm always cautious to say this, but I don't think he does. I don't think there's anywhere else in the Gospels where he gives a glimpse into the rejoicing, the scene in heaven of praise, of worship. It happens in Revelation and, and other places. But, but I can't think off the top of my head, and I couldn't think this morning, of a, of a place in the Gospels where we see worship, the worship of heaven. Churches sometimes ask, how, how can we make our worship better? You know, should we practice more? Should we improve our musicianship? Should we teach people a theology of worship? Maybe we will get closer to the worship of heaven whenever we've got restored sinners to celebrate. <laughs> whenever the lost are found, that our worship will more purely match the worship of heaven. And that it's not about the, the little things that we can tweak and change to make our, our musical worship, but worship is much wider than that. But it's not the little things that we could tweak and change. It's more a case of where do we get a glimpse in the life and teaching of Jesus? Where do we get a glimpse into what makes heaven party? <laughs> we get a glimpse of it when sinners are restored, when the lost are found then there is rejoicing. And our rejoicing on earth can match the rejoicing in heaven. And we can maybe have much, I love our, our, our musical worship, obviously, but I think the more missional we are, Jesus did discipleship on mission, and the more missional we are, and the more we look to, to follow Jesus in seeking the lost, the more we will grow in our discipleship because that's what happened to the 12 and the more we will encounter powerful worship because we're now really aligned with the values of heaven and the mission of Jesus. Jesus is asked why he eats with tax collectors and sinners and his answer is basically this, my father likes to party and I know what triggers the best parties. It's when the lost are found and therefore that's why I eat with tax collectors and sinners, because I want to give my father something to party about. And if we approach these parables with the right posture of one who needs grace, who needs mercy, who needs love, who needs to be lifted up by the strong arms of the shepherd, you will end up marveling at the father's incredible love for you, his incredible value of you, the cost. There's no cost that could be paid for a soul. We read that earlier, except the blood of Jesus. He purchased people for himself. And not only will you marvel at God's incredible value of you and grace for you and love for you, you will then be inspired to cause more God parties by joining Jesus in this mission of seeking and saving the lost, of going out into the highways and hedges, compelling them to come in so that the house might be full. Let's pray.